Let's start this morning in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Peter is uh, through a series of supernatural events. Peter finds himself in the house of a Gentile named Cornelius at the direction of the Lord. And he's beginning to speak or he tells them about Jesus and Jesus' earthly ministry. And in Acts chapter 10 verse 38, part of Peter's message is what Jesus was anointed to do and why he did what he did. Acts 10.38, Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We know that the anointing of Jesus took place in the Jordan River when John baptized him in water. There was a voice that came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Those that were present testified that there there was a the Holy Spirit that came down from heaven like a bird would fly down to the ground, it landed, he landed on Jesus and remained. Well, Peter tells us what Jesus was anointed for. He tells us why Jesus was anointed. God anointed him to go about and do good works. And then he specifies healing as a part of those good works who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The Bible is telling us that all sickness is therefore from the devil. And Jesus never had to pray, never had to stop, never had to seek God about ministering healing to anybody that came to it. But there are some places in the Bible that, through lack of understanding, people get confused about. And that the devil will use to try to draw you away from the truth of the word. Let's look at one of those places in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I would submit to you that the disciples knew more than most of the modern church knows. They recognized that sickness was the result of sin. They just didn't know whose sin it was. They assume it's either his or his parents. And so they asked Jesus about that. But in fact, sin is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5.12 is what opened the door to sickness and disease. Paul writing to the church said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, talking about Adam and his fall in the Garden of Eden, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Well, sickness is certainly a a byproduct or connected to death. Sickness unchecked will lead to death, physical death. And so when the disciples ask whose sin caused the problem, they're assuming it has to be personal sin, and Jesus said that it wasn't. I know when you're attacked with sickness, the devil is always there to encourage you to believe that it's your fault. And sometimes it might be. But sickness has a right to operate in this world. Satan has a right to bring sickness against you. But he doesn't have a right to make it stay. Here in this case, Jesus does what he always does. He answers the disciples' questions. 
But as in many other instances, he went further and talked about what God had sent him to do. So their question is, whose sin caused this man to be born blind? And Jesus answered, I'm reading from the King James, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now I read that according to the the, uh, punctuation that has been added to the King James, or that the translators added when they translated this from the original Greek. The Greek language in which the Bible was written would look kind of strange to us it would be the equivalent of all uppercase letters with no punctuation which means the translators are left to divide the word divide the original transcripts as they see fit or as they believe that it was intended to be they added the punctuation and the way the punctuation is placed where the punctuation is made it seems to indicate that jesus is saying that god made this man blind so that jesus could do the works of god upon him neither has this man sinned nor his parents but that is that the works of god should be made manifest in him then he goes on and says i must work the works of him that sent me while it's day the night cometh when no man can work and as long as i'm in the world i am the light of the world i was taught growing up in sunday school that God made this man blind so Jesus would have somebody to heal. I remember even as a kid thinking, are you kidding? That's the God you want us to serve? Somebody that made this man blind, spent all of his life blind without seeing anything, so Jesus would have somebody to heal. I didn't accept it then. I didn't have an explanation for it, but it it just didn't sit right with me. I just didn't think that's the way that it should be. I didn't know that that, whether it was that way or not. But if it was that way, it made me look kind of sideways at serving God. Who wants to serve God, a God like that? But since the translators put the punctuation in, we have a right to challenge that punctuation. They divided it in chapter and verse. They put the periods where they thought they should go. But I want you to read it this way. And see if this doesn't fit with the character and the nature of God better than the way that it's written in the King James. Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, comma, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. Now, some people would say, well, you're taking license with the scripture there. You're just trying to twist it around to make it say whatever you want it to say. So, all right, then let's look at it from a different angle. What does Jesus say that he's sent to do? The works of God. Isn't that what he said? He said there's a time coming when he won't be able to do them. But as long as it's the light of day, this period of time in his ministry, he's sent to do the works of God. What work did he do? He healed the man. Well, then we would have to say that Jesus is identifying that healing is the work of God. Could it be anything else? Not if what he said was true. So when he says, I must work the works of him that sent me. And then he heals the man from blindness. He spits on the ground, makes a little mud pack, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash off at the pool of Siloam. And he came again seeing. So Jesus clearly 
did the work of healing and he identifies that that's the work of God. Now, Jesus also said during his earthly ministries, John chapter 5, Jesus also said that he always did the will of his father. If this man was born blind by the will of God, then Jesus healing this man is contradicting the work of his father. Are you out there? I wish I'd been smart enough as a kid to realize these things. It would have helped me. It would have brought me closer to God the Father. Now, some people might say, well, it was the will of God for this man to be born blind, but then it was the will of God for Jesus to heal him when he came along in John chapter 9. Then that means God changed his will. And if there's one thing that's indisputable, God said, I am God, I change not. He is eternal, He is unchanging. There's not even a shadow of doubt of turning with him so that means if anything ever was his will it's always his will so if it was his will to make this man be born blind then it's always his will for this man to stay blind and jesus just works contrary to the will of god which means we don't have a holy savior a sinless savior which means we don't have redemption which means we might as well go party because there is no church there is no eternity there is no hope for heaven That's how serious these things really are, folks. I don't think many of us ever think them through to their final course. But that's how serious this is. And don't think for a minute that it's not this serious with God. Jesus paid the price for sin, sickness, and disease. Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he said, both our bodies and our spirits have been bought with a price. We know what that price is. Jesus paid for it with his own precious blood. Now, we know from uh, the story of creation that God made everything in six days. On the seventh day, he put an end to everything that he made, and he looked at the world and said, it's very good. There's no sickness and disease present. That's not hard to understand because God created his kingdom here on the earth, which is what Adam and Eve walked in before they fell. And so the will of God here on the earth would be the same as the will of God in heaven. And we know there's no sickness and disease in heaven. There's nothing that can hurt anybody. There's nothing that can destroy. There's nothing that can bring harm in any form whatsoever. Because that's the will of God. Well, when he made the earth and prior to sin coming in on the scene, that's the way the earth was too. God did not create sickness. Sickness was a byproduct of man's disobedience. Well, we see how that took place. In Genesis chapter 3, it it tells us about the encounter that Adam and Eve had with the devil. And it gives us some basic information. The Bible really doesn't tell us too much about the devil, thankfully. Because people seem to run off on tangents about stuff like that. But the Bible gives us enough information about the devil to know how he operates. First thing the devil says to Eve. He asks you a question. He, he says, has God said that you can't eat of all the trees? Has God said? What does that tell us? That tells us first and foremost the main purpose of the devil is going to be to question God's word. That's the first thing he does. Is he questions what God said down in uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4. Then he comes right out and contradicts what God said. 
Eve answers and said what God had told them, if they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they shall surely die. So verse 4, the devil comes and contradicts that. He said, you'll not die. You won't die. Your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God's. I really don't know what the attraction of that temptation was. They were already like God. They were operating as the gods of this earth. The ones who had complete dominion and authority over the creation that God had made. So I'm not exactly sure what that temptation was. What Eve was expecting that she could get through disobedience. But whatever it was, she went for it. It says the eyes of them both were open. She and Adam joined in together in this. The eyes of them both were open. And the first thing they saw was themselves. First thing they became conscious of was themselves. Up until that point in time, it wasn't that they weren't conscious of themselves. But to whatever degree they were conscious of themselves, they realized that they were in operating in perfection. Just the way God created. But now they see that something's wrong. The light went out. They're naked and they're ashamed. Before then, I believe they were clothed with the glory of God. It had to be something like that because it's not a matter of them standing there and then as soon as they sinned, their clothes fell off. That's not the issue. So they were clothed with something that changed. There was some form of clothing that they had that changed. I can't imagine what that would be if it wasn't the glory of God. So we know how the devil operates. The devil operates questioning and contradicting God's word. And folks, if we'll come to understand this, it'll make life a lot, a lot simpler for us. Everything the devil does is to challenge God's word. Everything is to challenge God's word. Now, to those that know the word and step out in faith to act on it, the devil's purpose is to try to tell us that God's word won't work for us the way that it says it will. Most of the Christians in this world, the modern day church, don't even have that problem because they don't know the word to begin with. They're not acting on or standing on anything in faith. And so the devil's operation against them is a lot different. He doesn't have to question what they're, what they're believing. They're not believing much in anything. So in those cases, many times, if not every time, he just uses the circumstances of life and his right to attack them because they're not standing on the word to resist him or to chase him off. He just brings circumstances against them and says all this trouble is caused by God. And that's one thing that the church has done with this John chapter 9 story. They've tried to skew whether they know it or not, it's the work of the devil that they've cooperated with to skew our vision or our understanding of God to make us think, to make those that will believe it think that God does bad stuff just as much as he does good stuff. You can't tell where he's going to do bad and where he's going to do good. So just take whatever comes and accept it as the will of God. And that's not the way God is. That's not the way he operates. Turn back with me to Isaiah 55. 
I'm sorry, let's start in chapter 53 first. We'll get to 55 in a little bit. I say in chapter 53, beginning in verse 4, it says, Surely he, speaking of Jesus, everybody accepts that this is the messianic chapter. This is an uh, explanation given to Isaiah about what the Messiah would do for us. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Greek word, uh, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word for griefs that's translated griefs here means sickness. Sorrows means pains. Now, let me take a little side journey here for a minute. And that is this. I believe the translators were sincere and honest in the work that they were doing. Don't you? I don't believe the translators set out to mislead anybody. I don't believe the translators set out to do a poor job. But the translators were left just as every translator is with all the different versions of the scripture and so forth. Every translator is going to be dependent on one of two things. Well, really two things. Two things affect their translation. First is their understanding of God. And second is their knowledge of the language their understanding of God must not have supported them to be able to translate this word sickness in Isaiah 53 when in other cases this same word grief is translated sickness in the Old Testament why not here why not in this case in this situation folks our understanding of God affects everything about our relationship with him. Everything. If we have a wrong idea about God, then every scripture we read will be filtered or, or adapted or bend, bent in some form to fit our understanding. That's what the Bible calls the devil setting up a stronghold. So many times people are trying to pull down strongholds and they think a certain kind of prayer will do that. Well, strongholds are wrong ideas that we have about God. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they made the word of God of no effect. They made it powerless because of their traditions. Their traditions were just preconceived notions and ideas. Just like the translators. But this word literally means, this word grief literally means sickness. The word sorrows literally means pains. So he says, surely. The only time the word surely is used in this chapter is in verse 4. Surely, without a shadow of a doubt. Surely Jesus has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's sin too. The reason it's mentioned twice there is because it's talking about the sin that you committed and the sin that Adam committed. Jesus paid the price for both. See, if it was just your sins that were forgiven when you got born again, you'd still be under the bondage of death because that death passed upon all men because of Adam's transgression, Adam's sin. So in order for you to be free in every respect, in order for God to restore you and me to the place that he always wanted man to have, which Genesis one twenty six identifies. God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let him have dominion in the earth. In order to come back to that place of dominion and have that dominion or that authority restored, Jesus had to do something about the original sin which caused spiritual death to pass upon all men. 
And then he's got to do something about your individual sin. And that's what these two words refer to. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Chastisement in this case means punishment. Peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It means well-being in every area, including financially, materially. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, how many times have we heard the church, modern-day teachers and ministers, try to tell us that that's spiritual? That's spiritual healing. God healed our spirits. Or in some cases, they say he healed our souls. Well, let's define what that means. Let's identify if that's possible. Are you healed spiritually when you make Jesus the Lord of your life? If it's healing that takes place when we ask Jesus into our hearts, then why did Jesus talk about being born again? Why does the Bible talk about old things passing away and all things becoming new? See, healing is just a recovery from a diseased condition or a condition of malady. So if we're just healed spiritually, that means we're not made new creatures in Christ Jesus. That means he takes the old dead spirit, just refurbishes, cleans it up a little bit, but you're still that fallen spirit. That goes against everything the Bible teaches. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. He goes so far in this, to describe the, the uh, process in Ezekiel chapter 26, or Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 26, by telling us that he takes the old stony heart, the unbelieving heart, the dead spirit out of us, and replaces it with a new spirit, and then he puts his spirit in that new spirit. Well, that can't be true if we're healed, just healed spiritually. God messed up. Well, what about the healing of the soul? Well, there's really no such thing as the healing of the soul. If you're talking in specific terms, the Bible identifies the soul as the mind, the will, and the emotions. And we sometimes talk about the uh, people's hurts being healed. But if you'll notice and remember, the Bible talks to people that have been born again, people that are filled with the Spirit, and talks to them about receiving the word to save their souls. James said it that way. He said, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Which is able to save your soul. Now, the word save that's used there is also used as the word heal in different places. But notice it's not the new birth that heals or saves your soul. It's renewing your mind to the word. That takes place after we're born again. That takes place after we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. That takes place after old things are passed away, talking about spiritual things, and all things become new. Well, then if it's the word of God that comes to us after salvation, then this can't be talking about spiritual healing. It cannot. But on the other hand, just as we referred uh, a little bit earlier to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Bible says, Paul told us by the Holy Ghost that we're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Both of them were purchased of God. Your physical body and your spirit. Both of them were purchased with the same price, which was the precious blood of Jesus. That's exactly what this is saying. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Physical healing was obtained by the blood of Jesus and the blood that he shed when he was beaten in Pilate's court. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely he has done that. It's almost like God knew it would be a matter of controversy. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 16, it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him, talking about Jesus, many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. You can see that Matthew, in the Greek language, uses words that identify physical healing. Now, some people would say, and have claimed that Jesus fulfilled what we just read in Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 when he was here on the earth. But that can't be right. And we've got Bible evidence to prove that. I'm going to turn over to chapter 12 real quickly and show you something that the Bible says about Jesus fulfilling the work of God. Jesus heals a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. And the Pharisees get upset and they start taking counsel against him, how they might destroy him. Beginning in verse 12, uh, verse 15, rather, chapter 12. It says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And he charged them that they should not make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet saying, behold, my servant on whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break and smoking flax shall he not quench. He's quoting from Isaiah. Till he send forth judgment into victory. Now notice verse 21. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Well, folks, if the principle, notice both cases in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 12. Both cases talks about the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. If chapter 12 is talking about, as some claim chapter 8 does, that Jesus fulfilled this when he was here on the earth, then the time of the Gentiles trusting in his name ended with his death. Well, we know that's not right. Jesus told his disciples to preach to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. There were several occasions where he identified of himself that I'm sent first to the Jews. Well, then what does this mean when it says so it might be fulfilled? It means that when Jesus came to the earth and began his earthly ministry, as far as God was concerned, everything that he said about Jesus was set in motion to be fulfilled. Everything. You may remember where we started in Acts chapter 10. One of the reasons that Philip, that uh, the supernatural events happened, the vision and fall, Peter falling into a trance and all that stuff happened to get him to Cornelius' house is because at that point, 10 years after the church had been born, Jesus had been raised from the dead. 10 years later, the, the message, the gospel message still hadn't gone much to the Gentiles. So Peter takes Jews with him. 
because he knows he's going to get called on the carpet. He's going to be rebuked. He's going to have to answer for why he went to a Gentile home and shared the message of Jesus. Well, the end result was everybody in that place got saved and got filled with the Holy Ghost. So we would certainly have to say that even after Jesus' death, the Gentiles were trusting in his name. So when it says that it might be fulfilled, it's talking about the beginning of the fulfillment that's culminated with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the work that he did. With that in mind, let me go back to Matthew chapter 8 again. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. Now remember Jesus' description in Isaiah 53, the Messianic chapter. The description is what would be available to us after his death. Not just what would be available to us while he was here on the earth. It talks about him shedding blood. It talks about him being wounded and the chastisement of our peace being upon him and and so forth. It talks about that that would come about for the world through his death and his burial and his resurrection. So when it says in verse 17 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, what is the Holy Ghost trying to get across to us? Well, first and foremost, is trying to identify that Jesus is doing the work of the Messiah, which makes him the Messiah. But secondly, and as far as our discussion this morning is concerned, maybe more importantly, it says that the thing that fulfilled what God said about Isaiah, through Isaiah, about Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs, sicknesses, and carried our pains. The thing that fulfills what God said the Messiah would do is the healing of all that were sick. That's the fulfillment part of the verse. Jesus healed all that were sick to fulfill what Isaiah said he would do. Jesus healed all that were sick. Now, if Jesus just healed all that were sick to show us that God's a good God, then there would be no need to attach it to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53. No need whatsoever to attach it to Isaiah's prophecy. The attachment to Isaiah's prophecy, which we clearly know comes about as a result of Jesus shedding his precious blood and presenting himself in the heavenly holy of holies for an eternal redemption for us. The fulfillment connection is that healing is for all that are sick. That's the connection. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter quotes, writing to the church, Peter quotes Isaiah 53, 5, 2. Verse 24, 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Peter writes this some 30 years after Jesus has risen from the dead, maybe 35. Somewhere in that range. So Peter is telling us by the Holy Ghost, instructed by the Holy Ghost, that healing for the physical body is still a part of what Jesus paid the price for. We know from Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, the healing, those for whom healing was fulfilled, is everybody. He healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick to fulfill, to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. So when Peter says that by Jesus' stripes you were healed, 
He's saying that the ones that were healed is everybody that was sick. Healing belongs to everybody. Healing belongs to everybody. Now, some, again, in the modern-day church will say that the, the, the healing passed away with the apostles, was done away with when the apostles, which is a real stupid argument, to be honest with you. You're telling me that Jesus left the future of the church in the hands of these guys? And that they were so significant and they were so important that when the last one of them died, the healing mercy of God changed? Well, what does that mean? That means God's healing mercy changes. That means God's not God. He does change. It means we're going to have to tear out the scriptures in the Bible that says God never changes. Because whatever God's will was for the early church, the first generation church, the church of Peter and Paul, and the things that we have record of in the scripture, it's not like that anymore. God changed. But again, I'll remind you that God said of himself, I am God, I change not. Which means God's will for the early days of the church, the first generation for the church, where we see signs and wonders and miracles being done, is the same as his will for the present day church. It's the same as his will for the future church. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now these are the the underpinnings, the foundations. For us to be able to receive anything and everything God did through Jesus. But again, the devil will always try to Challenge God's word. He'll always contradict God's word. He'll always try to get us off track. Believing in anything. Other than the truth of the word. I was praying about this service. Um, I like to get direction ahead of time. I like to find out what God wants me to do. A week ahead, so I can study, I can prepare, I can meditate, let it simmer, and all that kind of stuff. God seems to know that, and so he won't do it. (laughs) When's the last time you saw me teach a series? It's been a lifetime ago. A couple of months. Prior to the last couple of months, when have you ever known me not to teach a series? God's doing different things with me. Some of it I like. Some of it I'm getting used to. But one of the things that he told me about this service, I didn't know where he wanted me to go with it. And when I finally found out, which was this morning about 5.30, God never sleeps in her slumbers, so I guess he thinks I don't either. <laughs> but when I got some direction for what to do with this service, the Lord simply told me, he, he gave me certain direction. He brought certain scriptures to my mind, some that we've already shared with you and such. But then I said, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do from there? 
Because this is not anything I've really been studying on. This is not anything that, um, well, I certainly wasn't planning to uh, go this direction and so forth. But one of the things the Lord told me, he said, why don't you just tell him what I told you? I thought, well, that sounds all right. And I knew what he meant. I knew what he was getting at. There have been things along the way with me and the personal stand of faith that I've made against sickness and disease and the things that are taking place in, in my body and so forth, which if, I went into some detail about it last Sunday night, I think, or the Sunday before that. I'm not sure, whenever it was. And I really don't like doing that. It's something that God always, uh, the few times it's happened, uh, three times, I guess. And I really don't like doing it because it draws attention to me. And it, it creates, um, well, it makes some people feel sorry for me. And I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I don't need your sympathy. I appreciate it. I don't mean to sound unkind. But if sympathy is what you've got for me, hide it away somewhere. I don't need sympathy. I don't want sympathy. Sympathy. I don't want somebody to pat me on the back and say, oh, pastor, we understand. Get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) Sympathy kills people. I don't need you to join in with my pains or my sufferings or anything like that. So for that reason, I don't care if you know or not. Well, let me rephrase that. I don't care if you find out or not. But I don't want to tell you. See, there's not a thing in the world you can do to be part of my solution. Brother Hagin told me something a long time ago. It had to be a long time ago because he's been gone a long time. But he told me something a long time ago. He said, Mike, don't ever share with anybody the problem unless they can be part of the solution. And nobody can be part of my solution. I, I, I got kind of amused. The uh, the service that I was talking about, was it last Sunday night? Was it last Sunday night? Okay. What? Last Sunday night. Okay. Well, whenever it was, it was put up on the website. And I get tickled at some people's um, comments. I got some emails and some people just put comments up there and, and that kind of stuff. And I got tickled by it. There was one comment from somebody that, that just kind of blew it off and said, clean your liver. <laughs> and I laughed and I thought, my goodness gracious. That's the answer. I just need to detox my liver. And if everybody, they went on to say, all sickness is a result of toxins in the liver. So if everybody in the whole world would just detox their liver, we could wipe out sickness and disease like that. Some people made some statements about things that they'd prayed for me about and, and, and so forth. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the people praying for me. But if you're not believing with me, you might as well stop. If you are willing to believe with me, then that's the most you can do. And I've had people bless their hearts, try to bring me every type of cure and every type of book. And, and I understand people mean well. But there's only one answer, and that's the truth of the word. That's it. 
That's it. I've had people recommend that I go to certain doctors and certain things, take certain uh, treatments and so forth for this symptom or that symptom. If I did everything that everybody thinks I should do, I'd already be dead. I would have run myself ragged. The only answer there is, is in the word. Psalm 107 verse 20 says he sent his word and healed them. That's it. There is no plan B. So anyway, the Lord said, why don't you tell them what I told you? All right, I'll do that. I'll do some of that at least. We'll see where we go. Psalm 91 verse 14. There have been certain things along the way that the Lord has spoken to my heart. And, and I got to tell you, in several cases, they were scriptures that I already knew. They were scriptures that I had committed to memory and made a part of my confession. <coughs> Excuse me. And in other cases, there were things that the Lord brought that scriptures I had read before, but, uh, but really hadn't committed them to memory, wasn't using them and, and so forth. But either way, I mean, whether it's a scripture that I knew or a scripture that I didn't really know or didn't pay attention to, in, in both cases, both categories, there's a huge difference, a huge difference between me confessing the word and God speaking his word back to me. I, I, I really want to try to get this across. I don't know if it's possible, but I really want to try to get this across. One of the, uh, one of the first things is in Psalm 91 verse 14. And I've been confessing these scriptures, 14, 15, 16. I've been confessing these scriptures long before I was attacked with sickness. These are things that just dropped down in my heart many, many years ago. And I never had to reread them. I never had to memorize them. They just stuck with me. Verse 14, it says, because he has set his love upon me, I will deliver him. I was just waking up one morning in that place that Brother Hagin used to call between awake and asleep. I was just waking up. My eyes had just opened, not a second before. And the Lord said back to me, because you've set your love on me. Well, that changed everything about these scriptures. Maybe it shouldn't have, but it did. It changed everything about these scriptures for me. Because before that, I was quoting what I know God had given us all. Since that point in time, and this has been years ago. Since that point in time, now I'm quoting a scripture that God has given me. And so if there's anything that I could wish for every one of you, it would be to meditate on the word to the degree Make the word of God such a priority in your life to where God can whisper these verses back to you. Because that's what's made the difference for me. I'm not trying to say if I hadn't had something like that, I would have given up. Folks, I never give up. That's the reason God sent me here. So it's certainly not a matter of if he hadn't, I would have given up. You can just write it down. I'll never give up. Unless God tells me I'm doing the wrong thing. I just. It's just the way I'm made. But from the point in time that he said. Because you've set your love on me. 
He didn't even finish the verse. That's as far as he said. Because you've set your love on me. Well, I knew what the rest of the verses were. And I took it not to mean just for this one verse, verse 14. I took it to mean for all these verses. Which read, because he set his love upon me, I will deliver him. Because he's known my name, I'll set him on high. When I call unto him, he'll answer me. He'll be with me in trouble. He'll deliver me and he'll honor me. That word deliver, the second time the word deliver is used, it means rescue. The word honor means way down with blessings. It finishes up in verse 16. Saying, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Those are mine. You can use them, but they're mine. Another one was in Psalm 103. Not anything new, not anything you haven't heard before. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Verse 3, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thine diseases. Over and over and over again, the Bible connects sin and sickness. Over and over and over again. I don't understand where people are coming from that believe that God won't heal. Or, well, I don't know anybody believes that. People believe he can heal. Anything's possible with him. But you never know if he will. I don't know how people come up with that. There are so many scriptures that connect sin and sickness together. Concerning the benefits of God, the benefits of redemption, the work of Jesus, and so forth. There are so many scriptures that you have to overlook or you have to come to the conclusion that God really didn't mean what he said. Well, if he didn't mean what he said about sickness and disease, how do you know he meant what he said about sin? How do you know he meant what he said about your life? And what you can have? How do you know? The Bible's either all true or it's all a lie. It can't be part truth. That's impossible. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Here's the part that he whispered to me. Who redeems thy life from destruction. I first thought that means he's going to change Beth. (laughs) But I didn't have to go too far to find that out. That's not the case. I'm not awful. I needed a place for people to laugh. They got it. Who redeems thy life from destruction. Well, I know the rest of the verse. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercy. I got a promise from God to redeem my life from destruction. He goes on to say, who satisfies thy mouth with good things. So that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. I don't know if you noticed this or not, folks, but I never talk about growing old. Because he satisfies my mouth and renews my youth. I'm coming back to the place where I'm as strong as I was in my late teens. Here's one that he told me that I wasn't even aware of. Now, I'll have to clarify that. 
Because this is a verse, it's Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. This is a verse that Brother Hagin used to quote a lot. And so I knew that Isaiah 10, 27 says, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Brother Hagin used to quote that over and over and over again. He had identified where it was sometimes, other times he wouldn't. But I knew that part was there, but I didn't know. I can't say that I've never read. But I wasn't familiar with the first half of the verse. I just wasn't. I'd never really considered what it was talking about. It was never a part of what Brother Hagin was using the last half of the verse to teach on or, or whatever, whatever context that I heard it from him. But just as I was waking up, I had two dreams. They were just momentary dreams. But in this dream, these two dreams, the Lord said something to me. And I, because I wasn't familiar with this verse, it, uh, it set me on a search. And these were the two dreams that I had. In those two dreams, identical dreams, except for what was said. In those two dreams, I was standing there with God. I didn't see him, but I was conscious in the dream that I was in his presence. And he said this, the first dream, he said this, I will lift the burden from your shoulder. And that ended. And then there's another dream. They were two separate things. It wasn't like it was one dream where he was saying something twice. It was two separate dreams. I don't know how I can explain that because they were so quick. But it's the best I know to do. In the second dream, he said, I'll take the yoke off your neck. Well, because they were two dreams, I didn't know if they were two separate verses. I knew the answer was in the word. And so I started searching. And it didn't take me long. But here I come to Isaiah ten twenty seven, And I saw the last part of the verse. And that made it even more special to me. Because it was what I'd heard Brother Hagin say and preach and teach on so many times. Isaiah 10, 27, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now, I'm not sure I know what all that means. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Does that mean there's going to come a point in time where the power of God is going to come on me and the last trace, the final trace of the final symptom will disappear? I don't know. Does it mean the anointing that we have as believers or the anointing that comes that's uh, resident upon the word when we stand on it? I don't know. I'm good either way. End results is what matters to me. Isaiah 55 verse 8. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not thither, but waters the earth, and makes it to bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, that goeth forth out of my mouth. Now he uses rain as an example. Rain comes from heaven, goes to the earth accomplishes what it's supposed to do to the earth and returns as it evaporates as water vapor 
to be used again, but it served its purpose. That's the point that he's trying to make here. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. Void of what? Void of power or void of results. But it shall accomplish that which I please. Just like rain comes to the earth and accomplishes what rain is supposed to do in watering the ground and so forth. So the word worked the same way. It will accomplish that which I please and it will prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Here's God saying it's impossible for the word not to work for those who will accept it. It's impossible for healing scriptures not to bring healing. It's impossible for financial and uh, and material blessing scriptures not to produce material blessing. It's impossible. Now certainly he's not talking about the actions or the faith or the unbelief of the individual. He's talking about the power in his word. The same potential is available for everybody. Each one of us. And it will always work if you'll take it. That's what he's saying. It will always work. Another scripture he gave me is in Nahum chapter 1 verse 9. I mentioned this during the last uh, Sunday night service, I think. But I, I really didn't spend any time on it. I should have at least given some explanation. If you start in the first uh, couple of verses of the chapter, you'll find out that the context is that God is saying that he will exact revenge upon his enemies. He will pour out his fury upon those who have attacked his people. That's what the whole chapter 1 of Nahum is about. It's about God saying, here's what I will do. Here's how I will deliver my people. Here's the power and the fury and the vengeance and whatever words you want to use. Many of those words are in these first eight verses. Here's what God will do against his enemies. Verse 9, therefore, is a, um, it's a question from God to his people. He said, what, what do you imagine against the Lord? Now, if you look at other translations of this, they're all over the board. They're all over the place. They're talking about people plotting against God and, and stuff like that. But this word imagine just means fabricate a thought. Fabricate a, th- a thought. Now, the context of God pouring out his wrath upon his enemies and then saying, why are you fabricating thoughts against me? He's simply saying this. Why do you question whether I'll do what I said I'd do or not? That's what imagining against the Lord means here in Nahum chapter 1 verse 9. Why are you questioning whether or not I will do what I said? Well, what did he say he'd do? He said he would destroy his enemies. He said he'd bring an utter end to them and so forth. And he's asking his people, why do you think I won't do that? It's kind of like Smith Wigglesworth. One common theme, a common thing that he would do in his meetings, at least during a certain part of his life, was that he would question people. He'd go into churches and he'd question people. Because everybody knew the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the healings and all that kind of stuff that God used him in. He, during his earthly ministry, there are 20 some odd um, confirmed cases of people that he raised from the dead. I say 20 some odd because some say it's 23, some say it's 27. Either way, he's way ahead, again, uh, uh, way ahead of me, isn't he, you? And so things like that get out. And so people would come to his meetings with a great deal of skepticism. There'd be high expectancy on the part of some, but there were others that were just coming to see the show. There were a lot of people that were just coming to see 
what we've heard about is this possible, is this true, is this real? Not because they believe God or even were followers of God. And so Wigglesworth would stand up in the beginning of his meetings. He'd, if he'd been at a, uh, a certain church for a week, he'd do this in the early days of, the, of the, the week. And he'd just simply ask a question. He would ask, you don't think God's not going to honor his word here, do you? See, for him it was a given. For him it was an accepted thing, and that's why God used him such, in such a way that he did. He knew that God would honor his word no matter what the situation was, no matter how dire the circumstances. Big, big case of healing is the same as a little case of healing as far as God's concerned. Healing a cripple is the same as healing a headache as far as God's concerned. It's healing. It's a result of his presence. Well, Wigglesworth, because of the experience that he had and the way God used him, he had that. He, he understood that. So he didn't, the things that would frighten us didn't bother him a bit. We look at serious cases of sickness and disease or deformities or stuff like that, and we just think, please, Lord, don't have them come forward to be prayed for. Wigglesworth sought those things out. He searched for people that were in impossible situations. And they would mock mock the devil's power. He'd challenge the devil. He'd identify that this paralysis or sickness or whatever it was was of the devil. He would make fun of the devil's power. All the time standing on God's word and claiming that God's word would do the work. And he did. It did. Well, that's kind of what this is going. Why do you fabricate thoughts against the Lord? Why do you think God won't do what he's saying he'll do? Here's what he's going to do. He will make an utter end. Verse 8 even said that. He says it again. He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Affliction shall not rise up again the second time. I began confessing early on, not just for healing from this thing, even before it was diagnosed, even before the doctors put a name on it, which, who cares? The name doesn't change anything. I think the devil tries to give people names for things just to, for the purpose of scaring them. There's fear attached to certain names. There's fear attached to the name of cancer. There's fear attached to diseases that have been claimed or identified as incurable. Doesn't mean you have to be afraid. But it's an element of fear that you're going to have to deal with. You don't have to take it. You don't have to accept it. Have you noticed how doctors, the medical community now call things precancerous? I'm not against doctors. Thank God for good doctors. But I don't think the medical profession understands that they're falling into the devil's plan and trap of instilling fear in people. Precancerous means it's non-cancerous. So why say it's precancerous? It's just a means where the devil tries to instill fear in people, the hearers. So I began confessing early on that this thing will go and not depart. I didn't know about this scripture. I found out about this scripture through Dodie Osteen's book, Healed of Cancer. 
But man, I love this scripture. Not only gone, but gone to never return. I know a lot of times when people get healed of something that's very serious, I know that in many cases, they're afraid that it's going to come back. And the devil uses fear against them to try to tell them that it's going to come back. I'll put this back on you. You may have gotten healed for a bit. Enjoy your testimony, but here it comes. Well, not according to that. Not according to the word of God. This, uh, this week, the thing that got me over here, I guess, is that I was talking to the Lord. Well, I guess I'll have to back up and, and make, uh, set the thing up. I, I see what time it is. I'll be quick. I had said earlier in last year, maybe about this time last year, I'm not sure, I don't remember exactly, but I said that 2017 would be the year that I had my healing. I did, and I made a, a point of saying, notice how I said that. I didn't say receive my healing. I received my healing a long time ago. But the Bible says in Mark 11:24, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So in God's understanding, there's a difference between receiving and having. Receiving you do by faith. Having is when it materializes in the physical realm. So I said sometime last year, early in the year, that 2017 would be the year that I had my healing. Not received it, but had my healing. Well, the first of 2018 came along. And I can show you a lot of improvements. I can show you a lot of gains and we talked about some of that stuff last Sunday night too I can show you a lot of changes that have been made a lot of things that the devil used to have a hold on me that now he doesn't regarding this situation physical situation but there's no way you can dress it up except the way that it is and that is in 2017 I did not have my healing well that made me mad you can't imagine how mad it made me the whole week between Christmas and New Year's. I'm counting down the days. And I'm doing it joyfully. Because I know what I said. 2018 came around. I woke up the morning of 2018. And the same symptoms were present. And there's not much that makes me mad anymore. I've got a hold on my anger. I don't lose my temper. But man, that was one thing that made me mad. I'm not mad at God because he's not the one controlling it. So I guess I really didn't know how to focus my anger, where to direct my anger. I was certainly mad at the devil because I know what his part in this is. But I was pretty upset with myself too, thinking that there was something that I'd missed, something I wasn't doing or whatever. I just didn't have an answer. Well, the Lord... Gave me something to help me through that. When I finally calmed down and got to a place where I could hear. He reminded me of a couple of situations where I was believing for finances by a certain time. And that time came and went. But then the finances came in a short time after that. And just like I told the group last Sunday night. I found that in both cases when I brought the money to them. The money that I owed. They took the money. Even though I'd missed their deadline. Even though it was past the time that was identified as when it was due. 
They took the money and were glad to have it. Didn't even say anything about missing the deadline. They were just glad to have it. Well, in that case, in that situation, in both of those cases, the Lord reminded me and he said, it was your faith that worked, didn't it? Well, yeah, I wouldn't have had the money at all. He said, so then what difference did the deadline make? Well, in that context, none. But I drew back to him and said, but Lord, I said it. I said it. And you said we'd have what we said. So I told the Lord, I said, you know, I said, this has to come to an end sometime. I can't just stand in faith forever. This thing has to come to an end. That's all I said. And the next morning, the very next morning, just as I opened my eyes, the Lord gave me another scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. Chapter 11 is about the hall of fame of heroes, heroes of faith. Some of which received what they were believing for, like Abraham and the child of promise. Others that died without receiving what they had their faith on, the things that God had told them about, because they were related to Jesus coming to the earth and not just in their individual lives. But here's what I woke up with. Here's the last thing that I've gotten from the Lord, and it came a couple of days ago. Verse 2, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If you look that up in other scriptures, and other translations, I mean, it's a, it uses a lot of different words, the beginning and the end. But this word finish, it's the only time it's used in the, in the New Testament. Only time this Greek word is used. And it means completer. It means completer. But if you dig a little deeper into the word, it means God bringing an end to things in his own fashion. Doesn't mean in his own time, but in his own fashion. Well, how does God do things? Well, the Bible says God does all things well. And the word well that's used in the scripture means with excellence. When God brings things to an end, he does it in such a way that you see that it was him. Not man's way of doing things, but God's way of doing things. And the word, part of the definition of the word, the root word that's used for this, means to make glorious. Well, everything God does is glorious, isn't it? So this word here, where it says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, one meaning, maybe not even the, the primary meaning, but one meaning is that Jesus puts the glory in glorious. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Well, here's what I believe the Lord was telling me. I didn't get any explanations about it, but here's what I've gleaned from it. Just as Jesus has been the author of my faith, the word of God's been the foundation of everything I believe for. And I assume the same thing's true for you. Just as the word of God is the foundation for faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Just as the word of God is the foundation for your beginning of faith, 
I wasn't really looking for or confessing for Jesus to be the end of my faith. And I made that adjustment. I've been singing songs all week long about Jesus being the author and the finisher of my faith. And it's added something to me that I've never had before. It's added something to me. I immediately asked the Lord to show me. The Bible says the Holy Ghost to show you things to come. Show me, Lord, how this thing will end, how the, you will bring this thing to an end. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I said those words, I knew on the inside of me something. And that was that God wanted it to be a surprise. I'm okay with surprises. They're not my favorite. But some surprises are okay. But it was an amazing thing. It's as supernatural as anything that's ever happened to me. I knew as soon as I said, Lord, I'd sure like for the Holy Ghost to show me when it's going to come. When and how and so forth. Because see, if I know that, if I know it's going to happen in a service, we'll advertise. (laughs) You think I'm kidding? Why would I be kidding about that? If I knew when it's going to take place, I want to make sure that as many people as possible are there. I'd have the TV cameras repositioned and right in front of me and all that other kind of stuff. Why not? But as soon as I asked that, I knew, not words, but an inward witness, I knew I want to make that a surprise. That's what witnessed in my heart. But folks, the good news for me is that this thing has come to an end. It has come to an end. It has come to an end. And I don't know specifics, but I know this. I know the fight has been a public fight. It's been something I hadn't been able to hide. And dear Lord, I've tried. I've tried to think of every way I could stand. (laughs) Put my hand in my pocket, whatever. And I can't hide it. Well, then in the end of it, it's going to need to be public too, shouldn't it? I'm not trying to dictate to God how it's going to work. But I know like I've never known before because of what the Lord whispered to my heart. That Jesus is not just the author of my faith. He's not just the one I'm believing in. He's the end of my faith. He's the finisher of my faith. He's the one that will see it come to pass. Because healing belongs to us. It belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me and it belongs to every person on the earth. And there's nothing that's too hard for God. There is nothing that's too hard for God. There is nothing that's too hard for God. And Jesus even said that all things are possible to us that believe. Let's worship the Lord for a moment. Lord, we bless you. We magnify you. We thank you that your word is true. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall never fail. We are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We are delivered by his love. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Oh, Lord, it's so good to be free. 
You know how we suffered through these things. It's so good to be free. Completely free. Free indeed. Jesus, we thank you for being not only the author of our faith, the word made flesh, but the finisher of our faith, the word made real. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We magnify your holy name. We thank you that you've forgiven all of our iniquities. You've healed all our diseases. You've redeemed our lives from destruction and crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercy. We bless you, Lord Jesus. Because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call unto you, you'll answer us. You'll be with us in trouble. You'll deliver us and you'll honor us. With long life, you will satisfy us and show us your salvation. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We magnify your holy name. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for taking the burden off our shoulders, lifting the burden off of our shoulders, and taking the yoke off of our neck. And that yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be the name. The name that's above every name. The name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Sickness, we command you to go. Sickness, we call you gone in Jesus' name. We call our bodies well in Jesus' name. Bodies line up with the word in Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. You sent your word and healed us, Lord. And delivered us from our destructions. Say this after me. By the blood of Jesus... I am made a new creature in Christ Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, I am healed in his name. By the blood of Jesus, I am restored from sickness and disease. Restored unto divine health. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's all stand together. I only share the things that I have last Sunday night and then again this morning. The only reason that I share those things is because God told me to do it. That has to mean something. I don't claim to know everything about it. And I'm not going to try to go further than what the word says. Put my own things on it. But it has to mean something, doesn't it? It has to mean something. And we know 
from what Jesus said and what the word tells us. We know that the devil's plan of operation in many cases is to smite the shepherd so that the sheep will scatter. Well, if we, in that context, if we look at the victory, the victory of healing for the shepherd, then that would have to mean great things for the sheep, wouldn't it? Instead of the sheep being scattered, they'd be gathered. They'd be blessed. They would be increased. I've got a sense that that's what this is about. The Lord hadn't told me that. But that's what makes sense. And I believe I have the Holy Spirit on that. I believe this is important for all of us. I believe it's going to be a kickoff point for our church. There are things that I'm believing God with that are attached to this. Things I've been confessing for from the beginning. A change of direction. An increase where the ministry is concerned. Where the results are concerned. I can't help but believe that all these things are associated. If nothing else, it makes me feel better to think that my victory will be your victory. It makes me feel better, if nothing else. And I believe there's a lot more than that. But it makes me feel better to know, to believe that my victory brings your victory. My answer brings your answer. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your name. We thank you for your goodness. It's an honor, Lord, to stand on your word. It's an honor to see your word work. It's an honor to trust you. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back to evening school tonight if you can. The result of toxins in the liver. So if everybody in the whole world would just detox their liver, we could wipe out sickness and disease like that. Some people made some statements about things that they'd prayed for me about and, and, and so forth. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the people praying for me. But if you're not believing with me, you might as well stop. If you are willing to believe with me, then that's the most you can do. And I've had people bless their hearts, try to bring me every type of cure and every type of book. And, and I understand people mean well. But there's only one answer. And that's the truth of the word. Amen. That's it. That's it. I've had people recommend that I go to certain doctors and certain things, take certain treatments and so forth for this symptom or that symptom. If I did everything that everybody thinks I should do, I'd already be dead. I would have run myself ragged. 
The only answer there is, is in the word. Psalm 107 verse 20 says he sent his word and healed them. That's it. There is no plan B. So anyway, the Lord said, why don't you tell them what I told you? All right, I'll do that. I'll do some of that at least. We'll see where we go. Psalm 91 verse 14. There have been certain things along the way that the Lord has spoken to my heart. And, and I got to tell you, in several cases, they were scriptures that I already knew. They were scriptures that I had committed to memory and made a part of my confession. <coughs> Excuse me. And in other cases, there were things that the Lord brought, that scriptures I had read before, but, uh, but really hadn't committed them to memory, wasn't using them, and, and so forth. But either way, I mean, whether it's a scripture that I knew or a scripture that I didn't really know or didn't pay attention to, in, in both cases, both categories, there's a huge difference, a huge difference between me confessing the word and God speaking his word back to me. I, I, I really want to try to get this across. I don't know if it's possible, but I really want to try to get this across. One of the, uh, one of the first things is in Psalm 91 verse 14. And I've been confessing these scriptures, 14, 15, 16. I've been confessing these scriptures long before I was attacked with sickness. These are things that just dropped down in my heart many, many years ago. And I never had to reread them. I never had to memorize them. They just stuck with me. Verse 14, it says, because he has set his love upon me, I will deliver him. I was just waking up one morning in that place that Brother Hagin used to call between awake and asleep. I was just waking up. My eyes had just opened, not a second before. And the Lord said back to me, because you've set your love on me. Well, that changed everything about these scriptures. Maybe it shouldn't have. But it did. It changed everything about these scriptures for me. Because before that, I was quoting what I know God had given us all. Since that point in time, and this has been years ago. Since that point in time, now I'm quoting a scripture that God has given me. And so if there's anything that I could wish for every one of you, it would be to meditate on the word to the degree Make the word of God such a priority in your life to where God can whisper these verses back to you. Because that's what's made the difference for me. I'm not trying to say, if I hadn't had something like that, I would have given up. Folks, I never give up. Hallelujah. That's the reason God sent me here. Amen. So it's certainly not a matter of if he hadn't, I would have given up. You can just write it down. I'll never give up. Unless God tells me I'm doing the wrong thing, I just, it's just the way I'm made. But from the point in time that he said, because you've set your love on me, he didn't even finish the verse. That's as far as he said, because you've set your love on me. Well, I knew what the rest of the verses were. And I took it not to mean just for this one verse, verse 14. I took it to mean for all of these verses. Which read, because he set his love upon me, I will deliver him. Because he's known my name, I'll set him on high. 
when I call unto him, he'll answer me. He'll be with me in trouble. He'll deliver me and he'll honor me. That word deliver, the second time the word deliver is used, it means rescue. The word honor means way down with blessings. It finishes up in verse 16, saying, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Those are mine. You can use them, but they're mine. Another one was in Psalm 103. Not anything new, not anything you haven't heard before. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Verse 3, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thine diseases. Over and over and over again, the Bible connects sin and sickness. Over and over and over again. I don't understand where people are coming from that believe that God won't heal. Or, well, I don't know if anybody believes that. People believe he can heal. Anything's possible with him. But you never know if he will. I don't know how people come up with that. There are so many scriptures that connect sin and sickness together. Concerning the benefits of God, the benefits of redemption, the work of Jesus, and so forth. There are so many scriptures that you have to overlook. Or you have to come to the conclusion that God really didn't mean what he said. Well, if he didn't mean what he said about sickness and disease... How do you know he meant what he said about sin? How do you know he meant what he said about your life? And what you can have? How do you know? The Bible's either all true or it's all a lie. It can't be part truth. That's impossible. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Here's the part that he whispered to me. Who redeems thy life from destruction. I first thought that means he's going to change Beth. (laughs) But I didn't have to go too far to find that out. That's not the case. I'm not awful. I needed a place for people to laugh. They got it. (laughs) Who redeems thy life from destruction. Well, I know the rest of the verse. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercy. I got a promise from God to redeem my life from destruction. He goes on to say, who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. I don't know if you notice this or not, folks, but I never talk about growing old. Because he satisfies my mouth and renews my youth. I'm coming back to the place where I'm as strong as I was in my late teens. Here's one that he told me that I wasn't even aware of. Now, I'll have to clarify that because this is a verse. It's Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. This is a verse that Brother Hagin used to quote a lot. And so I knew that Isaiah 10, 27 says, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Brother Hagin used to quote that over and over and over again. He had identified where it was sometimes. Other times he wouldn't. But I knew that part was there. But I didn't know. I can't say that I've never read. 
But I wasn't familiar with the first half of the verse. I just wasn't. I'd never really considered what it was talking about. It was never a part of what Brother Hagin was using the last half of the verse to teach on or, or whatever, whatever context that I heard it from him. But just as I was waking up, I had two dreams. They were just momentary dreams. But in this dream, these two dreams, the Lord said something to me. And I, because I wasn't familiar with this verse, it, uh, it set me on a search. And these were the two dreams that I had. In those two dreams, identical dreams, except for what was said. In those two dreams, I was standing there with God. I didn't see him, but I was conscious in the dream that I was in his presence. And he said this, the first dream, he said this, I will lift the burden from your shoulder. And that ended. And then there's another dream. They were two separate things. It wasn't like it was one dream where he was saying something twice. It was two separate dreams. I don't know how I can explain that because they were so quick. But it's the best I know to do. In the second dream, he said, I'll take the yoke off your neck. Well, because they were two dreams, I didn't know if they were two separate verses. I knew the answer was in the word. And so I started searching. And it didn't take me long. But here I come to Isaiah ten twenty seven, And I saw the last part of the verse. And that made it even more special to me. Because it was what I'd heard Brother Hagin say and preach and teach on so many times. Isaiah 10, 27, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now, I'm not sure I know what all that means. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Does that mean there's going to come a point in time where the power of God is going to come on me and the last trace, the final trace of the final symptom will disappear? I don't know. Does it mean the anointing that we have as believers or the anointing that comes, that's uh, resident upon the word when we stand on it? I don't know. I'm good either way. End result is what matters to me. Isaiah 55, verse 8. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not thither, but waters the earth, and makes it to bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. Now he uses rain as an example. Rain comes from heaven, goes to the earth accomplishes what it's supposed to do to the earth and returns as it evaporates as water vapor to be used again, but it served its purpose. That's the point that he's trying to make here. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. Void of what? Void of power or void of results. But it shall accomplish that which I please. Just like rain comes to the earth and accomplishes what rain is supposed to do in watering the ground and so forth. So the word worked the same way.
It will accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Here's God saying, it's impossible for the word not to work for those who will accept it. It's impossible for healing scriptures not to bring healing. It's impossible for financial uh, and material blessing scriptures not to produce material blessing. It's impossible. Now, certainly he's not talking about the actions or the faith or the unbelief of the individual. He's talking about the power in his word. The same potential is available for everybody, each one of us. And it will always work if you'll take it. That's what he's saying. It will always work. Another scripture he gave me is in Nahum chapter 1 verse 9. I mentioned this during the last uh, Sunday night service, I think. But I, I really didn't spend any time on it. I should have at least given some explanation. If you start in the first uh, couple of verses of the chapter, you'll find out that the context is that God is saying that he will exact revenge upon his enemies. He will pour out his fury upon those who have attacked his people. That's what the whole chapter 1 of Nahum is about. It's about God saying, here's what I will do. Here's how I will deliver my people. Here's the power and the fury and the vengeance and whatever word you want to use. Many of those words are in these first eight verses. Here's what God will do against his enemies. Verse 9, therefore, is a, um, it's a question from God to his people. He said, what, what do you imagine against the Lord? Now, if you look at other translations of this, they're all over the board. They're all over the place. They're talking about people plotting against God and, and stuff like that. But this word imagine just means fabricate a thought. Fabricate a, th- a thought. Now, the context of God pouring out his wrath upon his enemies and then saying, why are you fabricating thoughts against me? He's simply saying this. Why do you question whether I'll do what I said I'd do or not. That's what imagining against the Lord means here in Nahum chapter 1 verse 9. Why are you questioning whether or not I will do what I said? Well, what did he say he'd do? He said he would destroy his enemies. He said he'd bring an utter end to them and so forth. And he's asking his people, why do you think I won't do that? It's kind of like Smith Wigglesworth. One common theme, a common thing that he would do in his meetings at least during a certain part of his life, was that he would question people. He'd go into churches and he'd question people because everybody knew the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the healings and all that kind of stuff that God used him in. He, during his earthly ministry, there are 20 some odd um, confirmed cases of people that he raised from the dead. I say 20 some odd because some say it's 23, some say it's 27. Either way, he's way ahead, again, uh, way ahead of me, isn't he, you? And so things like that get out. And so people would come to his meetings with a great deal of skepticism. There'd be high expectancy on the part of some, but there were others that were just coming to see the show. There were a lot of people that were just coming to see what we've heard about. Is this possible? Is this true? Is this real? Not because they believed God or even were followers of God. And so Wigglesworth would stand up in the beginning of his meetings He'd, if he'd been at a, uh, a certain church for a week, he'd do this in the early days of, the, of the, the week. And he'd just simply ask a question. He would ask, you don't think God's not going to honor his word here, do you? See, for him, it was a given. 
For him, it was an accepted thing, and that's why God used him such, in such a way that he did. He knew that God would honor his word no matter what the situation was, no matter how dire the circumstances. Big, big case of healing is the same as a little case of healing as far as God's concerned. Healing a cripple is the same as healing a headache as far as God's concerned. It's healing. It's a result of his presence. Well, Wigglesworth, because of the experience that he had and the way God used him, he had that. He, he understood that. So he didn't, the things that would frighten us didn't bother him a bit. We look at serious cases of sickness and disease or deformities or stuff like that, and we just think, please, Lord, don't have him come forward to be prayed for. Wigglesworth sought those things out. He searched for people that were in impossible situations, and they would mock mock the devil's power he'd challenge the devil he'd identify that this paralysis or sickness or whatever it was was of the devil he would make fun of the devil's power all the time standing on God's word and claiming that God's word would do the work and he did it did Well, that's kind of what this is going. Why do you fabricate thoughts against the Lord? Why do you think God won't do what he's saying he'll do? Here's what he's going to do. He will make an utter end. Verse 8 even said that. He says it again. He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Affliction shall not rise up again the second time. I began confessing early on, not just for healing from this thing, even before it was diagnosed, even before the doctors put a name on it, which, who cares? The name doesn't change anything. I think the devil tries to give people names for things just to, for the purpose of scaring them. There's fear attached to certain names. There's fear attached to the name of cancer. There's fear attached to diseases that have been claimed or identified as incurable. Doesn't mean you have to be afraid. But it's an element of fear that you're going to have to deal with. You don't have to take it. You don't have to accept it. Have you noticed how doctors, the medical community now call things precancerous? I'm not against doctors. Thank God for good doctors. But I don't think the medical profession understands that they're falling into the devil's plan and trap of instilling fear in people. Precancerous means it's non-cancerous. So why say it's precancerous? It's just a means where the devil tries to instill fear in people, the hearers. So I began confessing early on that this thing will go and not depart. I didn't know about this scripture. I found out about this scripture through Dodie Osteen's book, Healed of Cancer. But man, I love this scripture. Not only gone, but gone to never return. I know a lot of times when people get healed of something that's very serious, I know that in many cases, they're afraid that it's going to come back. And the devil uses fear against them 
to try to tell them that it's going to come back. I'll put this back on you. You may have gotten healed for a bit. Enjoy your testimony, but here it comes. Well, not according to that. Not according to the word of God. This, uh, this week, the thing that got me over here, I guess, is that I was talking to the Lord. Well, I guess I'm going to have to back up and, and make, uh, set the thing up. I, I see what time it is. I'll be quick. I had said earlier in last year, maybe about this time last year, I'm not sure, I don't remember exactly, but I said that 2017 would be the year that I had my healing. I did, and I made a, a point of saying, notice how I said that I didn't say receive my healing. I received my healing a long time ago. But the Bible says in Mark 11:24, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So in God's understanding, there's a difference between receiving and having. Receiving you do by faith. Having is when it materializes in the physical realm. So I said sometime last year, early in the year, that 2017 would be the year that I had my healing. Not received it, but had my healing. Well, the first of 2018 came along. And I can show you a lot of improvements. I can show you a lot of gains. And we talked about some of that stuff last Sunday night too. I can show you a lot of changes that had been made. A lot of things that the devil used to have a hold on me that now he doesn't. Regarding this situation, physical situation. But there's no way you can dress it up except the way that it is, and that is in 2017, I did not have my healing. Well, that made me mad. You can't imagine how mad it made me. The whole week between Christmas and New Year's, I'm counting down the days, and I'm doing it joyfully because I know what I said. 2018 came around. I woke up the morning of 2018. And the same symptoms were present. And there's not much that makes me mad anymore. I've got a hold on my anger. I don't lose my temper. But man, that was one thing that made me mad. I'm not mad at God because he's not the one controlling it. So I guess I really didn't know how to focus my anger, where to direct my anger. I was certainly mad at the devil because I know what his part in this is. But I was pretty upset with myself, too, thinking that there was something that I'd missed, something that I wasn't doing or whatever. I just didn't have an answer. Well, the Lord gave me something to help me through that when I finally calmed down and got to a place where I could hear. He reminded me of a couple of situations where I was believing for finances by a certain time, and that time came and went. But then the finances came in a short time after that. And just like I told the group last Sunday night, I found that in both cases, when I brought the money to them, the money that I owed, they took the money. Even though I'd missed their deadline, even though it was past the time that was identified as when it was due, they took the money and were glad to have it. Didn't even say anything about missing the deadline. They were just glad to have it. Well, in that case, in that situation, in both of those cases, the Lord reminded me, and he said, it was your faith that worked, didn't it? Well, yeah, I wouldn't have had the money at all. He said, so then what difference did the deadline make? 
Well, in that context, none. But I drew back to him and said, but Lord, I said it. I said it. And you said we'd have what we said. So I told the Lord, I said, you know, I said, this has to come to an end sometime. I can't just stand in faith forever. This thing has to come to an end. That's all I said. And the next morning, the very next morning, just as I opened my eyes, the Lord gave me another scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. Chapter 11 is about the hall of fame of heroes, heroes of faith. Some of which received what they were believing for, like Abraham and the child of promise. Others that died without receiving what they had their faith on, the things that God had told them about, because they were related to Jesus coming to the earth and not just in their individual lives. But here's what I woke up with. Here's the last thing that I've gotten from the Lord. And it came a couple of days ago. Verse 2, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If you look that up in other scriptures, and other translations, I mean, it's a, it uses a lot of different words, the beginning and the end. But this word finish, it's the only time it's used in the in the. New Testament, only time this Greek word is used. And it means completer. It means completer. But if you dig a little deeper into the word, it means God bringing an end to things in his own fashion. Doesn't mean in his own time, but in his own fashion. Well, how does God do things? Well, the Bible says God does all things well. And the word well that's used in the scripture means with excellence. When God brings things to an end, he does it in such a way that you see that it was him. Not man's way of doing things, but God's way of doing things. And the word, part of the definition of the word, the root word that's used for this, means to make glorious. Well, everything God does is glorious, isn't it? So this word here, where it says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. One meaning, maybe not even the the primary meaning, but one meaning is that Jesus puts the glory in glorious. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Well, here's what I believe the Lord was telling me. I didn't get any explanations about it. But here's what I've gleaned from it. Just as Jesus has been the author of my faith, the word of God's been the foundation of everything I believe for. And I assume the same thing's true for you. Just as the word of God is the foundation for faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Just as the word of God is the foundation for your beginning of faith, I wasn't really looking for or confessing for Jesus to be the end of my faith. And I made that adjustment. I've been singing songs all week long about Jesus being the author and the finisher of my faith. And it's added something to me that I've never had before. It's added something to me. 
I immediately asked the Lord to show me. The Bible says the Holy Ghost will show you things to come. Show me, Lord, how this thing will end, how you will bring this thing to an end. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I said those words, I knew on the inside of me something. And that was that God wanted it to be a surprise. I'm okay with surprises. They're not my favorite. But some surprises are okay. But it was an amazing thing. It's as supernatural as anything that's ever happened to me. I knew as soon as I said, Lord, I'd sure like for the Holy Ghost to show me when it's going to come. When and how and so forth. Because see, if I know that, if I know it's going to happen in a service, we'll advertise. (laughs) You think I'm kidding? Why would I be kidding about that? If I knew when it's going to take place, I want to make sure that as many people as possible are there. I'd have the TV cameras repositioned and right in front of me and all that other kind of stuff. Why not? But as soon as I asked that, I knew, not words, but an inward witness, I knew I want to make that a surprise. That's what witnessed in my heart. But folks, the good news for me is that this thing has come to an end. It has come to an end. It has come to an end. And I don't know specifics, but I know this. I know the fight has been a public fight. It's been something I hadn't been able to hide. And dear Lord, I've tried. I've tried to think of every way I could stand. (laughs) Put my hand in my pocket, whatever. And I can't hide it. But in the end of it, it's going to need to be public too, shouldn't it? I'm not trying to dictate to God how it's going to work. But I know like I've never known before. Because of what the Lord whispered to my heart. That Jesus is not just the author of my faith. He's not just the one I'm believing in. He's the end of my faith. He's the finisher of my faith. He's the one that will see it come to pass. Because healing belongs to us. It belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me. And it belongs to every person on the earth. And there's nothing that's too hard for God. There is nothing that's too hard for God. There is nothing that's too hard for God. And Jesus even said that all things are possible to us that believe. Let's worship the Lord for a moment. Lord, we bless you. We magnify you. We thank you that your word is true. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall never fail. We are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We are delivered by his love. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Oh, Lord, it's so good to be free. You know how we suffered through these things. It's so good. To be free. Completely free. Free indeed. Jesus we thank you for being not only the author of our faith. The word made flesh. But the finisher of our faith. The word made real. 
We bless you, Lord Jesus. We magnify your holy name. We thank you that you've forgiven all of our iniquities. You've healed all our diseases. You've redeemed our lives from destruction and crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercy. We bless you, Lord Jesus. Because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call unto you, you'll answer us. You'll be with us in trouble. You'll deliver us and you'll honor us. With long life, you will satisfy us and show us your salvation. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We magnify your holy name. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for taking the burden off our shoulders, lifting the burden off of our shoulders, and taking the yoke off of our neck. And that yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be the name. The name that's above every name. The name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Sickness, we command you to go. Sickness, we call you gone in Jesus' name. We call our bodies well. In Jesus' name. Bodies line up with the word. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. You sent your word and healed us, Lord. And delivered us from our destructions. Say this after me. By the blood of Jesus, I am made a new creature in Christ Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, I am healed in his name. By the blood of Jesus, I am restored from sickness and disease. Restored unto divine health. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's all stand together. I only share the things that I'm, I have last Sunday night and then again this morning. The only reason that I share those things is because God told me to do it. That has to mean something. I don't claim to know everything about it. And I'm not going to try to go further than what the word says. Put my own things on it. But it has to mean something, doesn't it? Amen. It has to mean something. And we know from what Jesus said and what the word tells us. We know that the devil's plan of operation in many cases is to smite the shepherd so that the sheep will scatter. Well, if we, in that context, if we look at the victory 
the victory of healing for the shepherd, then that would have to mean great things for the sheep, wouldn't it? Instead of the sheep being scattered, they'd be gathered. They'd be blessed. They would be increased. I've got a sense that that's what this is about. The Lord hadn't told me that. But that's what makes sense. And I believe I have the Holy Spirit on that. I believe this is important for all of us. I believe it's going to be a kickoff point for our church. There are things that I'm believing God with that are attached to this. Things I've been confessing for from the beginning. A change of direction. An increase where the ministry is concerned. Where the results are concerned. I can't help but believe that all these things are associated. If nothing else, it makes me feel better. To think that my victory will be your victory. It makes me feel better. If nothing else. And I believe there's a lot more than that. But it makes me feel better to know. To believe. That my victory brings your victory. My answer brings your answer. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your name. We thank you for your goodness. It's an honor, Lord, to stand on your word. It's an honor to see your word work. It's an honor to trust you. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back to evening school tonight if you can.